1963, President John F. Kennedy had a momentous meeting with Ethiopia's Emperor Haile Selassie. The emperor arrived wearing a field marshal's uniform and carrying a long swagger stick. He and JFK had a series of gatherings over the next few days. The president, who suffered from severe back pain, graciously stood at attention while Selassie spoke. He had said he had come to explore ways and means of strengthening cooperation between the U.S. and Ethiopia. He came hoping to receive JFK's full support in Ethiopia's dispute with neighboring Somalia, and he also invited the president to come and visit Ethiopia personally. In their meetings, the president spoke simply and directly, even when he knew it might disturb or displease the emperor, and he promised to give careful consideration to his request. The undisclosed U.S. strategy at the time was to partially satisfy the emperor's request as inexpensively as possible while still assuring a friendly government in Ethiopia. As to the invitation to go and visit, JFK expressed his desire to arrange such a trip as soon as his schedule permitted. Whether that was actually true or not didn't matter. The president was slain seven weeks later in Dallas. Now, in our text tonight, Jacob and Esau have a momentous meeting of their own with uh, a few similarities to JFK's and Selassie's. Esau, a military leader, stands before his counterpart, Jacob, who's crippled and in pain. Esau hopes that this meeting will lead to new cooperation between their peoples and that Jacob would come to visit his homeland. Jacob has no intention of doing so, but during the meeting speaks directly and tactfully so as not to offend his brother. Though he says he'd love to come down to Seir, where Esau lives, he never takes his brother up on the invitation. There's one more sort of interesting similarity we could point out. Haile Selassie's fuller title was this. I love stuff like this. This was his, his official title. Emperor of Ethiopia, elect of God, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, and king of kings. It's kind of blasphemous, but that's what his title was. Of course, Selassie wasn't God. That's obvious. Uh, but it is true that during his reign, those, uh, there were those, not just in his country, but around the world, who really saw him as God. Apparently, those who follow the Rastafarian uh, religion believed that he was God on the earth. And I just decided not to go down the rabbit hole of why on that one. You can do your own research. In verse 10 of our text, Jacob says this to Esau, I have seen your face and it is like seeing God's face. Okay, was Jacob just being polite? Uh, was he buttering Esau up? When we're thinking about Bible characters who serve as types of our Lord, we never put Esau on that list, right? Hebrews, in fact, describes Esau as an immoral, irreverent, unrepentant man overall. We don't want to emulate Esau. And yet, there is something about this specific encounter that reveals God's grace to sinners through Esau's actions. Uh, church father from the 5th century, Cyril of Alexandria, said this scene foreshadows the reconciliation of Christ with Israel. 
Uh, but it's not just about God and Israel. We will find that the words that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to use to describe what Esau does are almost exactly word for word how Jesus describes the prodigal son's father in Luke 15. Bible commentator Gordon Wynnum writes, though Jacob's comparison of Esau's action with God sounds too complimentary, it is not inappropriate for God's mercy is like this according to Scripture. Through this scene, we as believers and recipients of the mercy of God, we get to revel in the grace of God and His mercy which is directed to us and and shown to us through the example of Esau. And then after that, we'll see a misstep of Jacob, who we find follows the example of his grandfather Abraham a little too closely. So beginning in verse 1, we read this. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. There are several moments in our passage where it may have been helpful to have a a window into Jacob's thought process. Uh, Unfortunately, those windows are left closed. Apparently, the Holy Spirit decided we didn't really need to know what he was thinking. But here at the beginning and then later at the end, there are some specific moments where we think, "What, what was he thinking? Why exactly did he do that? We're left to wonder Uh, what his thought process was. We wonder, for example, was Jacob still afraid in this moment? Many commentators think that he was and that this dividing of the family here was a defensive measure, a last-ditch effort, hoping that maybe a few of the kids or maybe one or two of the wives might survive an attack from Esau. I'm not convinced for a couple of reasons. Number one, In the last passage, we were told plainly multiple times from God and Jacob himself when he was afraid. He just said outright, I am afraid. And the the scripture said, Jacob was afraid. But that's not said here at all. And, And on top of that, if we just think about this for a minute and see it play out, we kind of understand why he had sent groups of, and herds of, of, of animals as a gift to Esau, and he had specifically said, hey, leave distance between and be kind of this wave after wave of gifts sent to his brother, hoping to sort of soften him up a little bit. Uh, but what we're going to see here is that there wasn't big gaps in between these groups. When the, the wives and children show up, they, they show up effectively all at the same time. And so this sort of makeshift parade that he puts together wouldn't have been much of a defense strategy if you're talking about just separating people by a few yards, right? Uh, they're all pretty close together and on foot. And if a group of 400 soldiers wants to kill a group of people who are, you know, uh, the family, let's say, is about 15 or maybe a little bit more at this point, they're servants, but 400 people versus 15 in, let's call it a room this size, it's not much of a defensive measure to say, oh, but they were in the back of the room and you were in the front of the room, right? It's not like the Hanford Christmas parade where they put like 40 minutes in between each float and you're like, is it done? And the kids constantly turn and they're like, are we done? Is it done? And I say, well, the Santa wasn't on the fire truck, but it has been an hour and a half since the last float. So I'm not sure if we're done or not. Maybe Santa didn't come this year. Anyway, sadly, What is clear here is that Jacob was arranging his family according to how much he cared about them, uh, how important they were to him. He was 
actually ranking his family according to importance and according to his affection for them. Uh, and you kind of see that coming through the way that the words are presented. The text doesn't even bother to name two of the wives. They were concubines, but doesn't even bother to name them. And none of the children are named other than Joseph, highlighting just how much more he cared about Rachel and Joseph openly and plainly than he did any of the other wives or kids. Um, You know, Jacob's heart, as we saw last time, after long years of doing his own thing and not walking with the Lord and being sort of a hard-hearted man, uh, a heel snatcher, a cheater, a wrestler, Jacob's heart is finally being transformed. He's finally starting to actually walk by faith and follow the Lord, but he's not perfect. That's good news because we're not perfect either. And we see here that he has allowed favoritism to taint the way that he relates to his family. And this isn't new. This isn't a new. We shouldn't be surprised. Uh, this had already been a huge problem for his family. We remember back to that passage about. Um, the competition between the wives and how Leah spent day after day, year after year, praying and saying to herself, I just wish my husband would love me, and now maybe he'll love me, and he doesn't love me. And, and it was just a sad uh, episode of painful favoritism that was just laying waste to this family. And we see that it, it hasn't changed. In fact, it's only become more acute, uh, only become more obvious now as Jacob looks at Joseph as if he is the firstborn and, frankly, the only son that he has much affection for. In a sense, the only son he's even willing to name, in a sense. He's not the one writing, but that's, that's the message being given here. And we'll see that this favoritism becomes a huge problem in the coming years. The New Testament reminds us that God shows no partiality, and therefore we, as his people, are not to show any partiality not in the home, not in the house of the Lord, not in the halls of justice. The New Testament addresses us in each one of those areas, like, hey, you you are not to show favoritism in the home. You are not to show favoritism in the church. You are not to show favoritism if you are in a position of governance or in leadership. It is a weed that kills spiritual fruit and tears apart families, tears apart communities, uh, and like any other temptation or sin, it's a weed that needs to be plucked out of our hearts through the power of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 3 says, He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. So the Lord had strengthened Jacob. We saw this last time. It was a sort of one of those paradoxical things that God loves to do. While he was crippling Jacob physically, he strengthened him spiritually. And so he was strengthened and and built up, but Jacob still does not know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, The angel of the Lord had not explained everything that was going to take place. He still does not know if Esau comes as a friend or a foe. But unlike before, unlike in chapter 32, Jacob faces his brother here without fear. He moves out in front of his family Uh, acting as a shield to them, not vice versa. And we see that he is bowing as he goes. As he goes forward, he bows again and again and again seven times. There's an ancient tablet called the Tel El Armana tablet that explains how 
in this era and in this neck of the woods, uh, bowing seven times like this was customary when you were going to meet a king, meet a monarch. It was what you would do. And so Jacob is signaling absolute surrender and humility before his brother. And so he was emboldened by the Lord and by all that the Lord had done for him the night before. And the Lord had, we see, taken away his fear, but at the same time, it didn't make him swagger, not at all. He's limping and bowing and moving forward slowly. He walked humbly, we would say. John Golden Gay writes this, release from fear does not mean release from submissiveness. And so we see Jacob moving forward in the confidence of the Lord and emboldened by the Lord, but not an ounce of swagger, not an ounce of bravado, uh, humility and deference and submissiveness. Verse 4 says, But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him, and then they wept. If you were to turn to Luke 15, where Jesus delivers that beloved parable of the lost son, this is what you would read. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. It's almost exactly the same. In fact, the actions are exactly the same. This is God's heart and, uh, of compassion and care and forgiveness for you. You and I were the prodigals that the Father ran to save. He does not hold us at arm's length. The Lord rushes to embrace us, to fold us into His active, life-changing love, full of forgiveness, full of mercy, full of affection and care and tenderness. One commentator notes how wholeheartedly Esau acts in this whole scene, and he really does. He acts wholeheartedly. And you see here that he did not come to fight. He did not come to destroy. He didn't have a situation where, well, he came with a sword in his hand, but God, like he had done at other times, said, hey, don't you touch. Remember with Laban, he, God appeared to Laban the night before, and he says, don't you touch Jacob. I know you want to do him harm, but you better not, or, you're gonna, or I'm going to mess you up. That doesn't happen with Esau. Esau's not here to fight. He's not here to destroy. And so all, already we think of the effort and the, and the, uh, the, 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 personal, uh, the, the personal work that Esau did to marshal all of these forces, to bring them down the road. They went 100 miles from where they were to where we are so that he could then get off of his camel and run and embrace his brother, his brother who had wronged him, his brother who was absolutely guilty, his brother who they had no affection for one another before. And we see that Esau is just acting absolutely wholeheartedly in love and grace toward him. This meeting, which could have been defined by anger or bitterness or name-calling or argument. It was instead defined by mercy and joy. Bruce Waltke points out that while Esau runs, Jacob limps. No matter who we are, no matter what we've accomplished, no matter what sort of spiritual strength we have or had, on the spiritual level, every last one of us comes to God limping right? The, the, the Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? We come to the Lord with the realization and understanding that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we have nothing to give, nothing to add, no strength to save ourselves, no pulling ourselves out of the flames, no pulling ourselves up out of the mire. It's all a limp that we come to the Lord 
to receive his grace and his mercy because we are helpless and without hope. But then the Savior swoops in and wraps us up in his arms and covers us with his love and in that moment wipes out all of our past wrongdoing, replacing all of that terrible history of all the things that we've done with grace and tenderness and his plans for a glorious future. This is what Esau is doing. All of their bad blood, all that had happened between them, all of the guilt and all of the animosity was all gone the second that Esau embraced his brother. And instead, in its place was just forgiveness and grace. And we see Esau has plans, plans for the future. They're not plans that are going to work out, but here in the typology of what God has done for us, it's all replaced. The wrongs that you have done, done away with, cleansed because of the efforts of God, not because of what we've done, but because he came to meet with us and he wraps us up in his embrace and he says, all of that is gone and now I just have plans for your future. It's a wonderful thing. Esau had the right to hate Jacob. Jacob had cheated him. Jacob had wronged him. Even Jacob wouldn't have blamed Esau for destroying him right then and there, taking everything away from him. He had the right to do so, and no court in the world would have said Esau was wrong to do it. And yet, what do we see? Instead of wrath, Jacob found warmth. This is an affection here that these brothers, understand, these brothers never liked each other before this. It wasn't that they were buddies and they had a falling out and now they're getting back. They always hated each other. They always were in competition with one another. And, and while it's not true that God has always disliked us, that's not true. But it, it, it illustrates how wide the gulf was. These guys were not friends. They were not partners. They were not buddies. They didn't even want to be brothers. They had wronged one another. Jacob had wronged Esau. And we see this huge, wide gulf, and it was just gone. Esau took a long trip, as I said, 100 miles at his own expense, by his own effort, so he could embrace his brother. And it reminds us that our Lord crossed heaven and earth. He crossed time and eternity. He crossed death in the grave and so many other things that we can't even fathom out of his love for you so that he could embrace you, so that he could run to meet you when you were willing to turn to him. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. That's the Lord's, that's what the Lord thinks about you. That's the Lord's plan for you. That's what he has promised to you. Now, if right now your heart is whispering, yeah, maybe before, but I've I've just done too much. I'm worthless. I'm a limping failure. God must be disappointed with me. God must be fed up with me. God must have thought, hey, I gave it my best shot, but I've got to move on now to somebody who's more worthy. If your heart is whispering that to you right now, then go to Psalm 136, where 26 times in 26 verses we read, his faithful love endures forever just over and over and over again, no matter what else is going on in the world, what else is going on in your mind, what else was going on in human history, his faithful love endures forever. It's that hesed that we talked about last time, that faithful, repairing, forgiving, embracing, merciful love, that love for you, not just generically, that love for you endures forever. Verse five, when Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, 
Who are these with you? He answered, The children God has graciously given your servant. And then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. Scholars tell us that Jacob used terms that are unmistakably the language of submitting oneself by treaty to be a subject of another person. And in fact, we can see here a foreshadowing of how when the Lord arrives, every knee will bow. Jacob, the wives, the concubines, the children, the servants, everybody comes and bends their knees before Esau. It's all that they could do. And when the Lord arrives, it doesn't matter if, you, if, if a person was wanted to accept his grace or not, everybody in the room, everybody on the earth is going to bow their knee to the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And what it reminds us in the here and now, as people who are believers, is that Christ, is, Christ Jesus is our Savior, He is our friend, but He is also Master and Commander and King. And we owe Him our allegiance and our service and our loyalty and our strength. Of course, He isn't a taskmaster. He's not a bad king. We have a new king in the world right now, right, over in the United Kingdom. He can't really do anything, but nobody really likes him, right? It's got to be a drag to become king and know that nobody really likes you, okay? Everybody would say, I don't really want, I don't really want that guy to be our king. And everybody's kind of glad he doesn't have any actual power, right? That's not like our Lord Jesus. I mean, we love him. He's our, our savior and our friend. He's our maker and, and he's our beloved, of course, at the same time, he is king, and he is master, and he is commander. And he's not a taskmaster, but we are to live every day with our knees bowed to the king. You can read Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul talks about the, the power and the importance of kneeling before the Lord. He said, this is why I kneel before the Lord and he says, because as I kneel before the Lord, he enriches us and, and glorifies us and administrates his incredible power and plan through us as we kneel before him. And so Jesus is our friend and he is our savior and, and we don't have to be afraid of him and we don't have to think that he's going to mistreat us and he is our king before whom we are to bow our knees and say, Lord, what do you desire of, of me, your servant, today? Verse 8 says this, So Esau said, What do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my Lord, Jacob answered. Esau demonstrates here how the Lord interacts with people. He speaks to the people of earth and, and asks us questions and invites us to respond to him. You can think of all those times in the Gospels where Jesus would stop and talk to a person and, he'd say, and he would say, what do you want me to do for you? And so often it would seem like such an obvious question and, and think, why would you ask that? And the, and the reason is because God says, yeah, I want to interact with this person. I want to hear it from you. I want you to look into your heart and say, what do I want from the Lord? What do I think about the Lord? How do I consider my life in relationship to who he is and what he said? And so in a similar way, we see a type of that here. Jacob's answer was, give me grace. Great answer. He calls Esau Adonai here. That's a term men would use for a master, like a boss or, or a earthly lord of some sort. But of course, most of you know it's also a term the Bible uses for God, for our Lord. 
It's a word that means owner, master, father. It's used of the Messiah in passages like Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, right? Adonai, we sing that song, praise Adonai. So we see that Jacob's heart is spiritually calibrated just as it should be. What do you want? What do you mean by all of this? He said, I want grace. Just give me grace. Give me favor, please. As we speak to the Lord, there's a lot of things we ask the Lord for, and that's great. The greatest thing we can ask for is His grace, or give me grace. And the great news is that God never withholds His grace from us. It overflows in abundance to us, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And Paul always in his letters talks about grace and peace to you, grace and peace to you. The Lord never withholds it, but that means all the more that we should be asking for it. Lord, that thing you want to give me, I want it too. Would you give it to me? I want that more than anything else, Lord. Your grace poured out in my life and, and activated in my life so that my life can be transformed and that my life can become a conduit of your grace for others. Verse 9 says, I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face since you've accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Jacob continues to call himself a servant and call Esau his Lord, but notice what Esau's doing. Esau consistently calls Jacob my brother. What an amazing thing that God has done. When we think about God as judge and God as holy and we as unholy and we as deserving of judgment, and we look into the word of God and see what he has done, it would have been more than we could ask or deserve for him to simply spare our lives and just say, hey, okay, I'm, not, I'm going to forgive you of your sin, but then that's it. But he goes beyond that. It would have been more than we ask or deserve for him to not just spare our lives, but give us entrance into heaven, which he has done. Uh, and, and then beyond that, he says, but I'll, how about you become my servants? Hey, man, this keeps just stacking up things that I don't deserve and out of your grace you're giving me. But so much more than that, the Lord does, going farther and farther in his affection for us. The Lord says, I'm going to spare your lives. I'm going to cancel your debt. I'm going to allow you to be my servants. I'm going to give you entrance into heaven. And then, to boot, I'm going to make you citizens of my kingdom. You know what? How about we also call you friends? How about on top of that, I invite you into the house and I adopt you as sons and daughters into the family of God. And how about I share my inheritance with you? And how about you rule and reign with me? in my kingdom. This is incredible. And so we see Esau says, hey, I'm still calling you brother. And it's just, just the tiniest drop of the kind of gracious generosity that the Lord shows to us. This is the acceptance of God. Jacob said to Esau, you have accepted me. And when we think about God accepting us, forgiving our sin, giving us access to heaven, allowing us to serve him, becoming his friends, becoming his children, joining with him in the kingdom. This is the acceptance of God. The theological word book of the Old Testament tells us that this is a term that means to be favorably received and that it describes God's pleasure with his servants. It's the word God the Father uses in Isaiah 42 when he says, 
I delight in Christ the Son. That same delight that God the Father has for Christ the Son, he says, and also you. I delight in you the exact same way. I accept you the exact same way. When we are in Christ, we are not lesser in God's eyes. He says, I look at you and I see the blood of my son. I see the righteousness of my son. I see what we have worked since eternity past to accomplish so that you could be saved and you could be new creations and you could be brought into the family. I'm not disappointed with you. I'm not annoyed with you. I'm not had it with you. I'm not up to here with you. I delight in you the same way that I delight in my perfect son. In Psalm 147, we read this, the Lord values those who fear him, those who put their hope in his faithful love. Values there is the same root word we see here as accepted. On the authority of God's word, we know that when we come to him in faith and receive his free gift of grace, he accepts us, he values us, he delights in us. Just like Jacob, we do not deserve it, Quite the opposite, in fact. The Lord's acceptance and forgiveness are unmerited, and he extends it to us all the same if we want to receive it. And now, much more than God just meeting us sort of at a crossroads, right? We see them meeting here on the road. And and the image we get to see here is it's not that God meets us at the crossroads and says, all right, you know, guys messed up with sin and everything, I took care of it. This squares us. You go your way, I'll go my way, right? That's not what's happening at all. It's not that kind of a meeting. Uh, He gives much more than we could ever ask or imagine. As people who have received the grace of God, we can say now, like Jacob, I have everything I need. Your version may say, I have enough. And in the New King James, for example, it says, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. And then it says, Jacob says, I have enough. Um, but in the Hebrew, Jacob is saying something different. There are different words being used. He says, I have everything that I need. Those words, of course, remind us of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. Your version may say, I have everything I need. Your version may say, I shall not want. All the same idea. And so we can see God's peace ruling in Jacob's heart in this moment, thanks to this encounter with Esau. Where would they live? Where would they go? What happens when a famine comes to the country? What happens if foes oppose them? What about this limp? How is he going to work? How is he going to accomplish all the things he needs to accomplish? Those are all fair questions. But in this moment, Jacob has the splendid certainty of faith and can absolutely correctly say, I have everything that I need. No, I don't know exactly what's going to happen every day from here on out, but I know, thanks to God's acceptance and the grace that he's poured out in my, my life here, I know that I have everything that I need. We're good. We're covered. The Lord has got me covered. Verse 12, and Esau said, let's move on and I'll go on ahead of you. Like all biblical types, we can't press too hard, otherwise the analogy starts to crumble. But here we can still see a little shadow of our Lord's goodness. Esau says, let's move out together. Your translation may say, let's take our journey. And at the same time, he says, and I will go before you. What a great statement of how the Lord leads and of his continual presence in our lives. He walks with us and goes before. He's not some far removed deity up 
you know, in some crazy mountain and that if you can survive the trip up the mountain and, and crawl your way into his mighty fortress, he'll answer one question. We've kind of all heard a joke or a folk tale like that. If you can get all the way up into the temple of the holy up on Mount Everest, then that, that deity or that genie will answer one question for you. And the person always ends up asking, is this the place? And then they say, yes, that was your one question, right? And so we kind of have this idea that deities are far removed and that we have to claw our way into their presence, and that's not the case at all. The Lord says, no, 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 I'm, I want to go with you. I'm with you, and I'm going to go before you to clear the way. In Deuteronomy, we read this, for the Lord your God is the one who will go with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. And of course, our Lord Jesus said the exact same in Matthew 28. While this gives us one last beautiful reminder of the Lord's presence and care for us, this is the moment in the story where the scene of of God's grace starts to fade. It's kind of like in a movie when a dream sequence comes to an end and, and you're back where you were. We find the brothers there on the road, and now Esau has made this very real offer to Jacob. He says, why don't you all come with me? I'll lead you on down to my territory. This is a dangerous offer. Esau's plan would put an unbeliever in a position of leadership over the family of faith. He would be leading them out of the land of promise, out of Canaan, and therefore out of the will of God. And so this is definitely not what God had directed Jacob to do. So how would he answer? Verse 13, Jacob replied, my Lord knows that the children are weak and I have nursing flocks and herds. If they're driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go on ahead of his servant. I will continue on slowly at a pace suited to the livestock and the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Some criticized Jacob here saying he was lying again, that it was the old Jacob sort of back behind the wheel. Others point out that the Bible doesn't call this a lie. Earlier in Jacob's life, the Holy Spirit was happy to label Jacob's actions as deception. Remember, it said Jacob deceived Laban when he was leaving, paid in Aram, uh, but not here. In fact, if we had been there at the scene, it would have been obvious that Jacob is saying, I'm not going to go with you, man. Like, we're good, but no, we need to separate. He's doing so in a very polite way. Esau, of course, wouldn't need to travel hard and fast like Jacob is suggesting. In fact, Esau wouldn't have been able to either. Esau also now had nursing flocks given to him by his brother, 550 animals with their young. He too would need to travel slowly home. And so we see, though, that Esau gets the message and he says, okay, I got you, and he leaves that same day. We're not given all the details of their talk or their time together. We will find in chapter 36 that they figured out that they wouldn't be able to live together, just like Lot and Abraham had discovered, that the land couldn't support both of them. So then we read this in verse 15. Esau said, let me leave some of my people with you. But Jacob replied, why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. Without Esau's people to guide, how would Jacob find his brother in Seir, right? I mean, it would be possible, but obviously Jacob is doing what we all sometimes do. Yeah, we should totally get lunch sometime, right? You're not getting lunch. It's not going to happen, right? But you don't want to say, hey, yeah, that was a nice talk. No, we're never having lunch together. That would be rude and weird, right? So that's, that's what I think is happening here. 
I do see one last little echo of the Lord's grace in Esau's final word here as we're seeing the Lord in his actions. Our Lord, who has gone before us and wants to bring us to his home, was faithful to leave some of his people with us. The church is given not just out of convenience, not just simple tradition, not just so we have somewhere to go a couple times a week. God gives us each other so that we might encourage and support and protect and guide one another as we're built up together. We're meant to take the road of faith together until we make it home. So in verses 1 through 15, Jacob enjoys the grace of God through the example of his brother But this chapter, which shined so bright at the start, ends with storm clouds gathered on the horizon. Jacob makes a significant mistake here. It seems as though in the aftermath of all of these incredible events, he sort of breathes a sigh of relief, and instead of continuing continuing in faithful diligence, he just simply imitates things that he heard Abraham had done and calls it good. It starts with a small move. Verse 16 That day Esau started on his way back to Seir, but Jacob went to Sukkoth, and he built a house for himself himself and shelters for his livestock. This is why the place was called Sukkoth. Jacob doesn't go to Hebron to live with Isaac. We don't know why. It's kind of telling. Doesn't go home to see his dad. He moves four miles to the north and west of his meeting with Esau, and he lives there for a little while in a house. And we're not sure sure how long he was there, but after some time he moves on again, not to where God had led him, but simply copying the footsteps of his grandfather. Verse 18, after Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. He set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. We know that this was not a good decision because of two reasons. Number one, the disaster that comes in the very next chapter, and that after that tragedy, God is going to speak directly to Jacob and say, get up, go to Bethel, and settle there. Now, Bethel was only 20 miles from Shechem, and so it seems like Jacob knew he should probably get himself back to Bethel, but once in Shechem, it seems he thought, eh, close enough. How is this possible? You know, how can you be Jacob and, and wrestle with the angel of the Lord and have this mind-blowing meeting with your brother who was completely providential and full of God's grace and leading and all of that, and then be like, yeah, close enough is good enough? It, like the song says, our hearts are prone to wander. Walking by faith, following God requires daily determination. You know, you don't eat by accident, right? You don't just kind of walk around and food falls into your mouth. Uh, you make choices about when and what, and then you act on those choices. You put those choices into motion. King Joash is a wonderful example and actually a terrible warning to us about our propensity to wander from the Lord. You have to understand that for 40 years, Joash uh, loved the Lord and honored God for 40 years. His whole life was about repairing the temple and doing what no one else was doing and, and honoring God in that way. That was his focus. That was his passion. But then after 40 years, the priest Jehoiada died. Now, Jehoiada had been like a father to Joash. And, and after Jehoiada died, Joash sort of sat back and started to 
to wander in his heart. He stopped listening to the truth. And as a result, he abandoned the temple that he had spent 40 years working on. He abandoned the Lord. And he even had Jehoiada's son killed when he tried to direct Joash and say, hey man, go follow the Lord. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Jacob was wandering from where God wanted him. Of course, it was only 20 miles. What's the big deal? But what seemed safe to Jacob wasn't safe at all. R. Kent Hughes calls this mixed uh, faith mixed with partial obedience, and that is a great recipe for disaster. Genesis constantly describes cities in Canaan as being bad places for God's people to be. But there's Jacob, camped right outside of Shechem. Why did he do this? It seems he was trying to mimic what Abraham had done. Abraham, in Genesis 12, came to Shechem, built an altar, and bought a piece of land as a burial plot in this spot. And now Jacob does the same thing. The land he bought would be used for his burial, according to Joshua 24. But like Abraham, this time in Shechem was a prelude to disaster. At the same time, we see he does want to worship God. He wants to follow the Lord, but he stops short of complete obedience in his choices. Instead, he just says, I'll mimic what my grandfather did. I'll go through those same motions, and that's good enough, right? I did the thing, so I'm good, right? Jacob assumed Laban was going to hurt his family when he left. He assumed Esau was going to hurt his family when he knew he was going to meet him. Ironically, now he assumes the pagan people of Shechem would be good for his family. And the opposite was true, as we'll see next time. Now, God's gracious love does not give us a blank check to do whatever we think is best in life. The Lord is still the decider. He's still the director. Jacob's walk of faith was not just about getting away from Laban or not going with Esau. It was about being where the Lord wanted him to be, doing what the Lord wanted him to do. And at this point, that place was Bethel, just a day's journey away, but not just, well, settle a day's journey from Bethel. No, get to Bethel. Do what the Lord has said. Now, Jacob wasn't perfect. He still had a lot to learn, just like we do. At the same time, his failure here, amazingly, did not diminish God's grace or love for him. No, the Lord was still faithful to come alongside his limping son and faithfully complete the work he began, just as he will for us. His faithful love endures forever.